be sure. I knew it. Listen, that was terrible. <laughs> tomorrow night, if we don't have it in the mix, we're going to sing it tomorrow night, okay? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not the worship guy. I have no authority. No authority. We'll talk to somebody. How are you today? On a scale of 1 to 10, how are you today? Okay. Would you stand for just a second and uh, say hi to someone? Just real quick. Just greet somebody. Say hi to somebody. Hi. Hello. How are you? All right. The introverts have had enough. Okay. All right. And as you're sitting back down, go ahead and take a Bible out. Take a Bible out and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Comes right after Colossians 1 and 2. We're going to go to Colossians 3 tonight, I think. Uh, my name is Adam. What's yours? Hello, hello, Melissa, Megan, and rah, that's the other name I heard in there. I, uh, okay, a couple things. One, you can text me at any time. Here's my number up on the screen. We'll throw it up there in case, in case you don't have it. I love hearing from you. I thank you so much for sharing with me yesterday, and thank you for sharing with me throughout the day. Um, I try to respond as best I can, but I can't always, so um, I love the stuff we got last night. You know, I asked two questions. I asked what has God done in your life at Bayshore? And you gave me some great answers. I mean, there are many testimonies among us here tonight. And then I asked, what are you hoping God might do uh, this year at family camp? It was interesting. Um, I had a great conversation with somebody. It was a very astute observation. They said, really, you know, Adam, God owes us nothing. We really have no right to expect anything of him. And that's true. He really, he's given us everything we need. So to go to the Father and demand yet more, on one hand, is uh, outlandish and, uh, and ridiculous, Yet at the same time, he does tell us to ask and to seek and to knock. Uh, and he reminds us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So we have to play this sort of, no, we don't have to play it. That's the wrong word. We, we have to be honest before the Lord because he knows our hearts anyway. And so we might say, God, here's what I'm hoping you'll do in my life. And whether you do that or not is up to you because ultimately I submit to your lordship and to your goodness. That's the prayer of trust. That's the kind of prayer that I believe honors the Lord the most. And so yesterday, uh, you know, I, I kind of went through your text, especially through the hopes and expectations texts. And uh, I realized two things. Uh, one, you asked some great questions, which I've basically used to build the rest of the week. So I've basically scrapped what we had, and I, we have a totally different plan uh, for this week, which I, I trust the Lord, and, and maybe you'll be able to tell that we scrapped it. But I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. I think it's going to be meaningful. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is somebody texted and asked, how did you go bald? And seriously, and it, that was funnier than that. Come on, you guys. Thank you. Kevin, do you remember that where you asked for the, the chuckle? Yeah, I get that. Um, <laughs> hi, Jake from SAU. Hello. I'm already getting texts. Really quick, uh, Colossians. That's the book we're going to. Okay, so um, I didn't do a good job yesterday of giving you biographical information. Not that I want to talk about me or think that this is about me, but I, when people came up to me yesterday and they said, who are you and where are you from? Like, like on the second day, if people are still asking about the basic credentials of the speaker, I realized maybe I should have done a little bit more 
work and sort of like telling you about me and so you know where I'm from. So my name is Adam. I grew up on the east side of the state in Metro Detroit in Garden City, Michigan. If you've ever landed in Metro Airport, Detroit Metro Airport, you flew over the house I grew up in. We lived close enough to the airport that I could count windows on a 747. I mean, that's how close we were. So I grew up there on the east side. Uh, that's where I got the internship and the apprenticeship and the electrician thing. And I was planning on working for one of the big three, probably Chrysler at the time. That was the area where we uh, were a part of a church, a free Methodist church over there called Westland Free Methodist. It's where I sensed my first call to ministry. And that's where I sort of began. That's my, my like, cross here is my hometown is Ford Road and Middle Belt in Garden City, Michigan. And so then uh, I went to Spring Arbor University, which is in Spring Arbor, Michigan, which is Spring Arbor, which is just outside Jackson, Michigan. And so uh, I went there for four years. I met my lovely wife, Emily, and uh, we got married. And uh, then we went to a church in Toledo, near Toledo. It was actually in Lambertville, Michigan called Crossroads. We were there for four years. Then we went back to Spring Arbor Free Methodist Church. I worked there for six years. I was a worship pastor at both of those places, Crossroads and Spring Arbor. And then for the last six years, I've been at Portage Free Methodist Church. And how many of you know where Portage is? Raise your hand. Now, on that hand that's raised, show me where on your Michigan map. That's right. That's good. So Portage is basically right. It is Kalamazoo in essence. You wouldn't even be able to tell that you've left Kalamazoo and gotten into Portage unless there are signs. It's very subtle. So that's where I'm from. There is a city called Kalamazoo, and that's where we're from. We've lived there for six years now on the west side of the state, and my job is lead pastor. And if it's one thing I've learned, it's that um, um, associate pastors and youth pastors and worship pastors have got it made, in some sense, in that when I would walk into the church building as an associate staff member and, like, there was water leaking from the roof or, like, the library was on fire, I would say, hope somebody fixes that and then go to my office (laughs) And get to work. But now as lead pastor, every problem is my problem. And now that I've been there for six years, I can't blame the old guy anymore, the guy before me. So um, that's what we've been doing. And so we're in the process at our church of pretty radical change. We changed the name of the church. We're now going to be known as Renovation Church. The Latin word renovare means to renew, to, to bring to a new condition. It's different than restoration. Restoration brings it back to the way it was. That's antiquing. That's, that's a different thing altogether. To, re- to renovate is to take an existing structure and rebuild it. And that's what we believe Jesus is doing in us. So our purpose as a church is spiritual formation. Our mission statement is to help people find, follow, and be like Jesus. And we are known as Renovation Church. As a coincidence and coincidence only, we happen to also be renovating our building. And so we took out the church library. We redid some areas in in our lobby. And then we got rid of our pews and put in, we're putting in chairs. So actually when I left on Sunday from Portage, uh, they were in the process of removing the final pews and bringing them to their final burial site, which is a big blue dumpster. Yeah. I had so many great ideas. You guys, these are great pews. They're made from 100% press board. Um, they are, they are genuine, like creakers and like that. And, um, I just knew that we could do nothing with them. So we tried to sell them on eBay and nobody wanted them. And, and so anyway, we got rid of the rest of them and they're, and they're gone now. The pews are gone. And, and so they took the pews out and they took all the carpet out and then they'll put chairs in. So when I left last Sunday, it was like some pews and I left, and now I'm going to come back next Sunday, and it will be new carpet, new chairs. It's going to be, like, amazing. I'm really excited about this. Very, very, very excited. With me on this trip, I mean, I have a family. I have a wife, Emily. I have a daughter, Lexi, a son, Malachi, and a son, Zachary. We have, we have these children together. Emily and I have been married for, it will be 17 years on August 10th. 17 years. Uh, in fact, Emily and I spent our, no, okay. Emily and I spent our first um, year as a married couple at Simpson Park Camp. Not the whole year, 
but just that week of our, of our anniversary was at Simpson Park because we traveled in Wellspring as the only married Wellspring team members. And so we'd get to a camp, and the, and the camp directors would say, all right, all the Wellspring guys can go over here at this cabin, and all the Wellspring girls can go over here to this cabin, and the uh, <coughs> honeymoon suite, is right, and that was where Emily and I would go. It was, it was, it was awesome. So, so um, anyway, so we've got, these, we've got these kids. We love our kids dearly. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them tonight, not a whole bunch, but I don't have my whole family with me. Um, and I'll tell you why, I'll tell you about that in just a little bit too. But I do have some members of my family with me, namely my 12-year-old Malachi, uh, whose name means God's messenger. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And the less biblical among us will pronounce it as Malachi, which we're fine with, but it is Malachi. And we call him Mac for short, M-A-C, because I love Macintosh computers and I love the TV show MacGyver, who doesn't? And uh, so that's Mac. And so Mac is with us, uh, with me. Uh, he's my 12-year-old son. He's about the size of a 16-year-old. He's big for his age. I don't know where he gets it. And he has, he has his friend with him, Brad, Bradley. Bradley's 13. So it's basically me and um, my almost teenage son and his friend in Oak Ridge Lodge. And I was really afraid, Kevin. I was really afraid that by today it would smell like B.O. and Axe body spray. But it doesn't smell like that. It actually smells like burning sugar manure. <laughs> Because that's what everything smells like right now. I went up and talked with the choir before the service started, and they said, Adam, that's the smell. And I said, oh, that's the smell. I was worried it was the altos, but no, it's, no, it's not you. <laughs> Just kidding. I didn't say that. You can't knock the altos. We need them. They hold it all together, believe me. So that's right. Um, and some, altos, some, some in the choir were saying it was manure, and some were saying it's sugar something or hog something, and so I'm just going to call it sugar manure. That's, I think, the best way to describe, to describe that smell. Uh, this afternoon, we played a game of mini golf, and then tonight, we ate meatloaf. Did you all have the meatloaf in the dining hall? If you eat in the dining hall, you know what I'm talking about. Meatloaf, I think, is Jesus' favorite food. Now, he was a Jew, so he probably didn't eat it. No, nonetheless, nonetheless, I do believe it's blessed by the Lord. Because meatloaf is one of only two foods I will put ketchup on, meatloaf and then french fries. And I want you to know, I went up and I got my serving of meatloaf from your incredible, you have a great food service staff here. You really do, Bayshore, you do. I mean, that is, that is an extremely difficult job. And the people who feed you deserve extra hugs and high fives, so be sure to show them that appreciation. But I went up a second time and I said, I would like you to give me as much meatloaf as you're allowed to give me. It was a Ron Swanson kind of moment. And she kept stacking and stacking and stacking, and she said, say when. And all of a sudden, it was a game of chicken. <laughs> and I was like, keep it coming. And she was like, but sir, you know? And then I was like, my doctor says my meatloaf levels are low. We got to fix that tonight. <laughs> so I want you to know I've eaten a lot of meatloaf today. If the message suddenly ends... Anyway, so, so anyway, you, you texted in, uh, no, I'm not going to say that, um, you texted in some great stuff yesterday, and one of the things I looked for was a trend, and one trend that appeared in, in maybe five trends is this, somebody said that their hope and their expectation here at Bayshore is that they want to become more like Christ. They want to become more like Christ. Can I tell you something? It's probably one of the most dangerous prayers you could ever pray. God, make me more like your son. To which he says, oh, really? It's a dangerous prayer. Make me more like Jesus. 
which is really what it is to follow Jesus. That we follow Jesus, and in following him, we become like him. You know, uh, I'll just say as a dad, dads are not perfect. And uh, I'll, say, I'll say as a pastor that, that Father's Day is sometimes very difficult, and even calling God Father is sometimes difficult for people. And I want you to know in those times where I'm an imperfect dad, the one that I look to is Jesus. Now, Jesus was not a father per se, but Hebrews describes Jesus as my brother. And Jesus is the one who got it right. And Jesus knows what, it is to like, what it's like to have a perfect dad. And so I go to Jesus and I say, you got to help me be a better dad because I just totally blew it. I want to be more like Jesus. But the problem with that prayer is, if, he's gonna, if, if we're serious about it, he's not going to meet us in the easy times and the comfort as much as he is going to meet us in the suffering and the difficult stuff. Are you open to Colossians 3? Okay. You guys are. Are you guys open to Colossians 3? Over here? Okay, Colossians 3. What I'd like to do is um, just talk about the question, what does it mean to be more like Jesus? Now, of course, the best way for us to become more like Jesus is to know what Jesus did and to know what Jesus actually accomplished and how he walked and, and how he thought and how he prayed and what he loved and what he valued and what he, igno- what he ignored and what he understood as not being a big deal. So let me ask you this question as you're open to Colossians 3, and I want you to text in just a couple things. What role do I play, what role do you play in becoming more like Jesus? Right? Like if we're going to say, I want to be more like Jesus, we obviously know that Jesus has done a great work on the cross, and we know that Jesus is doing a great work still today in refining us and renewing us, interceding for us. Like, we know that Jesus is doing a bunch of stuff, right? Yes, I mean, he is so generous, so faithful. He's perfect. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the great high priest. Jesus is making this all happen. So I know it's not my effort, right? I know that. But I do want to ask the question, what role do I play in becoming more like Jesus? What's my responsibility? What should I be doing when it comes to spiritual formation? Okay, a couple things have come in. Surrender, serving others, submission. I should be walking as Jesus did. I should spend time talking with him. Again, submission. I really need to know who Jesus is to be like him. Yes, I need to study his word. The choices we make, how we spend our time, Bible study, attitude. How open am I to the Holy Spirit, yielding my will to him. I need to put others' welfare above my own. I need to be teachable. I need to be humble. I need to reflect Jesus. That I need to trust and obey. Are the, did you agree with these? Are there any outliers there that don't belong on the list? I need to be a student. I need to study to learn. Yeah, to die to self. Ooh, this is good. Okay, I think we're going down the right track. Excellent. Looking for the holy and not dwelling in the holes. Ooh, I like that too. So let's look at Colossians 3. Because I want to know what role do I play in becoming more like Jesus. This is what Paul writes. He says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, 
sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So let's ask the question again. What role do I play in becoming more like Jesus? Look right there at verse 3, chapter 1. Paul reminds us who we are. Paul reminds us what Christ has already done and the effectiveness of his work. He says, listen, this is a fact. You have been raised with Christ. And so because of this fact, this is, not a fee- this is not a feeling thing where you feel like you've been raised with Christ today, but, but not on Thursday. I felt kind of low, so I didn't, it couldn't be true because I didn't have the right feeling. Paul is merely talking about what is factually true. He says, since you have been raised with Christ, this is what you do as a result. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. So Paul is saying, here's the fact. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Here's the reality. His death is sufficient for our atonement. We are made one with God again through Christ. Not of my own merit, not by my own shed blood. I could never repay him for what he has done. I wouldn't even try to waste my time. I merely have to trust in the fact that Jesus and his death and his resurrection is enough. And that somehow mysteriously. It's not that we have this whole thing understood like a really, like a really hard math problem. It's mysterious, and we, we, we hold that mystery close, and we enjoy it, but somehow Jesus' death and resurrection and my faith in him means that I can now rest assured that I am a child of God, and in that position, I have something to do. What's he tell us to do? Set our hearts on things above and set our minds on things above. Now, why, Paul, you know, he's, he's a good writer. He's a good guy. He's definitely writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But wasn't he just a little redundant? Why didn't he just say, set your mind on things above? Why has he got to bring in the heart and the mind? Here's a great example. If you are married, you know what it's like to have your heart and your mind just absorbed in that like tangle of, ooh, I love her, and she loves me. When I first saw my wife, she wasn't my wife then. She was just Emily. She walks through a doorway. She's wearing this blue, shiny shirt, and she has this look on her face like, whatever, which is one of the things I love about her. She's not impressed. You all laugh at my dumb jokes. She just shakes her head like this. Mm-mm. First time I saw her, I, I thought to myself, she's beautiful. I, I want to get to know her. It just so happened that she and I were in a music theory class together. And back in the day, we had these workbooks that we would, like, write in with pencils. And remember those? And, uh, and, so, and so 
we would do homework, like, because you're supposed to do homework in college, and often, sometimes we did. Um, and so, and so, like, I would do my music theory homework, and she would do hers, but then I would say, hey, Emily, did, did you figure out that thing on page 14 or whatever? And she was like, no, which was a big fat lie, even though the scripture says don't do it. She lied because she wanted me to come over and help her. And so she told me that she would erase her workbook and erase all of her answers so that we could work together on it. Do you see how music brings us together? <laughs> and long story short, I asked Emily to marry me. And I'll never forget this either. I got down on one knee, like you're supposed to, and I said, will you marry me? And this is what she said. Ask me again. She said, ask me again. And I got scared because I thought she needed more time to think about it. But that's not why she said, ask me again. She said, ask me again because she never wanted to forget that moment. I loved her so much. I love her so much now. My heart was set on Emily. My mind was set on Emily. Now, 17 years later, can I tell you, yeah, let me just summarize this by saying this. If anybody says to you, oh, married couple, oh, we never fight, they're either lying or someone's bending over backwards and about to explode, all right? If you live with another human being, sparks are going to fly. It's just going to go that way. When Emily and I first got married, we got into our first fight after our first grocery store trip. We went to Meyer. We went to Meyer. okay? Just Meyer. just a story. You guys know what Meyer is, right? Sometimes I go to camps and they're like, what's that? And I have to translate it to Walmart. And that's hard. That's difficult because they're different. It's like metric to imperial. Anyway, um, so we go to Meyer, and we get all the stuff and the eggs and the cereal. And the, we were eating a lot of quesadillas for whatever reason. That was a big thing at the time. And we got all the parts for that. And then we, then we got some bread, all this stuff. So we get home, and we're unloading the groceries. And we put the cereal where the cereal belongs, in the cupboard or the pantry. We put the eggs where the eggs belong, in the fridge. We put the ice cream where the ice cream belongs, in the We put the salt and the spices in the spice rack. And, we, and, we put, and then we put the bread in the Did you hear it? Did you hear it? She put the bread in the refrigerator. To which I said, silly Emily, you put the bread in the refrigerator. It goes in this box that says bread. And she said, ridiculous, Adam. Bread goes in the refrigerator, so it keeps longer. And I said, are you mad? Bread goes in the bread box. The box says bread. And she said, that's where we keep cookies and coupons. Being, being more left-brained in that moment, I said, then we need to change the label or go to counseling because I said, why would you put the bread in the refrigerator and then it's cold? And she said, Adam, that's the point of it being in the fridge. And so as the man of the house, I put my foot down and I said, Emily, we can put the bread wherever you want. That's what I said. And so, where's the bread at at our house now? It's in the fridge where it belongs, where the Lord has clearly spoken it shall go. <laughs> but in the good times and the bad, in the, in the rough patches and the smooth, you know that in a relationship, you have to have more than just heart and emotion. You have to have made a choice, a logical mental choice, in which 
The conditions will never change regardless of the circumstances. I will always love Emily. It's a choice. She will always love me. It's a choice. Like that was an actual choice she made. Because I don't know if you'd believe this or not. You'll believe it by Thursday or Friday after we've been together for a long time. But I, I'm kind of unlovable sometimes. I'm kind of a jerk. I'm a meanie. I just am. She, she's helped me so much in this. Love is so much more. Relationship is so much more than just the warm fuzzies. Set your heart on things above, which is to put your emotions, your, 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 your everything about you in you that drives you, your passions, but also put your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why would we do this? Because we've died, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Listen, the only thing that truly gives you the ability to do this is not the fact that you try really hard to think about Jesus, your heart and your mind on things above will in many ways only be a result of you dying to self. And somebody texted that in already. What is my role in becoming more like Jesus? It's to die to self. In Matthew 16, 24, in fact, I invite you to turn there with me really quick. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus speaks to this issue with great precision and clarity, so much so that it might have been one of the things that that pushed many of his crowd away. And they said, I don't want anything to do with that. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus talks about death to self. And he talks about taking up the cross before he himself had lifted up the cross and carried it for us. He says, listen, Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or can anyone give anything in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Death is going to be a recurring theme in Colossians, especially Colossians 3, because you cannot have a resurrection without a death. And for us to be risen with Christ, we have to have died in Christ. Galatians 2.20, I bet some of you have it memorized. It says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Now Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself, who died for me. Jesus never calls us to do something that he himself has not done. When Jesus says, take up your cross, it's not like he's like the lazy coach who's saying, run another lap while the coach sits on the, on the bleachers and drinks a Slurpee. Like Jesus actually leads the way as the pioneer and author of our salvation and carrying the cross and dying to self. Jesus knows what it is to die to self. And so Paul says this, he says in verse 5, for you to set your mind and hearts on things above, you've got to be in the business of killing off the stuff that pulls you away from that. You've got to be in the business of, of regular sacrifice where you are putting a stake through the heart, whatever it is that belongs to your earthly nature. And then he gives a list of really nasty things. And he talks about sexual immorality. And he talks about impurity and lust and evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. One thing that I will say about that list is that lust and I would even say pornography is one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with in the church today. It's so available and so instant, and it seems victimless, though it is certainly not. And all of it, whether it's an addiction to pornography or an addiction to anything else or a sense that I've got to exalt, it's all greed. It's all greed. 
We cannot be satisfied by anything but Jesus. I, I know that that's, that sounds probably trite and cute and Christianese, but it's, it's true. You will never find satisfaction, total and complete satisfaction outside of Jesus. And you will never find Jesus unless you die. And you will never be fully dead until you're regularly in the practice of putting those things to death, which is an actual action on my part. Did you notice that Paul says in verse 5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, then he gives the list? And he says the wrath of God is coming because, because there's always a consequence to our sin. But then look at verse 7. He says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. He's vacillating back and forth between the reality of how we are today and the reality of who we are in Christ. Listen, you have been crucified with Christ. Your life is no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. That's what he says. And yet at the same time, he says, you've got to put to death all this stuff that echoes your former life. You are not the person you were is what he's saying. So you don't have to keep doing the things you did because you're a completely different individual. He says, you used to walk this way. That's who you were. It's not who you are. So not if, but when, the next time you sin. And Satan comes along and he says, I told you, Adam. I told you you'll never get over this. And Jesus isn't even going to forgive you this time. He's not just going to keep letting you go for this. He's going he's to hold you to account. He's going he's gonna to abandon you. Anytime you hear a ridiculous lie like that, this is the truth. You are not who you were. You've been bought with a price. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm not who I was. I'm not that person anymore. I'm not that person anymore. Say it with me. I'm not that person anymore. That's not who I am. Yeah, but Adam, what about the times where I, where I stumble and I fall? It's going to happen. You stumble, you fall, and you say, you know what? I'm not that person anymore. That's not who I am. I, I need to put something to death, like today. I need to do something to cut myself off. I need to do something to put me in a different trajectory because the one that I'm on right now is not bringing me closer to Jesus because I really want to be like him. In our bathrooms at our house, we have windows, and they're not like nice privacy glass windows. They're just like windows. And so originally we put like curtains in there and that wasn't working. And so Emily found this stuff online that you spray on windows and it makes it like frosty. It makes the glass like privacy glass. It's like having privacy glass without paying privacy glass dollars. It's great. Um, it's like that stuff you used to spray on your windows to make it look like snow in the corners. You know what I'm talking about? What's it called? Flocking? Okay, I thought that's what seagulls did. It's called flocking? Okay, so we, so we, right? She puts this stuff on. I walk in the bathroom one day, and I see there's a name etched into the, to the flocking. You never guess. Z-A-C. Guess who did it? Now, if you don't have kids, you're like, it's obvious. But I've got plural kids and two brothers. And so I had to go to them, and I had to ask what sounds like a really dumb question, but you got to ask because you got to be like Columbo in this. And I just got to ask one more question. So the question I asked was, Hey, not many people appreciated Columbo, so thank you. I said, hey, which one of you guys wrote Zach in the window? And Zach, my son, in a moment of, of true and honest confession, it was a come-to-Jesus moment, he said, Dad, it was me. Raise his hand. I said, I see that hand. Are there any others? And he said, he said Dad, it was me. And I said, Zach, why did you write your name in the window? And this is what he, I said, you know that's not the right thing to do. And he said to me, and this is a direct quote, he said, Dad, I regretted it as soon as I wrote the Z. 
I regretted it as soon as I wrote the Z, which means the regret kicked in at the bottom of the Z, but was not enough to stop him from the A, nor the almost complete circle of the letter C, nor was his regret deep enough to make him come to honest confession, tearful confession. His, his regret pushed him to play more Xbox. And exact, that's not what we do, man. Now, this is the same kid, mind you. This is the same kid who a few weeks ago in our backyard, we were in our pool, and all of a sudden shouts as we're all swimming together in the pool. My son shouts, ah, it hurts when I pee. <laughs> Don't miss the detail that we were in our pool when he shouted this. Dad, I regretted it as soon as I felt relief. <laughs> it's really not that much more ridiculous than some of the things I do as a follower of Jesus. It really isn't, just to be honest with you guys. I love, I love the family that came and shared before the offering. They said something that's really important that you need to hear. Um, you do not have to pretend like everything's okay. You know that, right? You know, I, I pastor a church, and my family is wonderful but imperfect. And for a while, I was sensitive to that. And so I, I, I said, you know, early on, we got to really pull this together. We're the senior pastor family now, and Emily's the first lady. So I'm like, Emily, you're the pastor's wife. You got to start wearing denim and baking like cookies and playing piano. You got to run the nursery, like all those ridiculous stereotypes. I told you guys, I'm an idiot sometimes. So like, fortunately, my church does not hold her to that standard, and neither should yours. But our family is not perfect, and I can't tell you the strange relief it is to discover that just about every family is dysfunctional. One person described marriage as two sinners living together. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> but it does explain some things. Um, there are things still that I struggle with. I'm still tempted. I bet you are too. We don't have to pretend like that list is about somebody else. We have to come to grips with the gospel. If we really don't want to be more like Jesus, we have to come to terms with the fact that I'm not that person anymore. Not because of how I feel, but because of the fact that Christ has raised me up and is now seated in the heavenly places. Look at verse 8. Paul goes on. He nails it home even more. He says, you've got to get rid of, yourself, uh, get rid of even more stuff. Then he gives that list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the creator. I love that imagery. That for us to keep growing and to become more like Christ means that we're in a continual state of getting rid of the old things that hold us back. That there is a moment of salvation where we are saved and we are made right with God and we call that justification and yet there is this process that we call sanctification of becoming more like Jesus over time. It is both instant and gradual. You are saved and you are being saved. You are a follower of Jesus who is stumbling along just like the disciples. Did you notice if you read the Gospels how Jesus was strangely drawn to broken people? All of his disciples bailed on him while he was on the cross. And not only does he come back to them afterwards, he actually pulls them all together and says, let's pick up where we left off, shall we? Peter, do you love me? Yup. Do you love me? Yup. Do you love me? Yup. Good. Go and build the church. Go and spread this message. You honestly think that your failure will somehow be such a disappointment to, to Jesus that he will just go, ah, forget it. And you're like, no, Adam, that's not the gospel, John 3.16. But I'm going to push back on that and say, well, then why are you pretending like everything's okay? I want to be more like, I want to be more like Jesus. You know, 
the idea of taking off and putting on, it looks really ridiculous to say that you're going to get up in the morning and change out of your pajamas and into your suit and tie for the big meeting at work and not take your pajamas off first, right? Doesn't that look ridiculous? You put your, you put your shirt and stuff and your suit over like your Ward Cleaver pajamas. Another reference that not many people get anymore. Like you would get out of your pajamas first and maybe even get cleaned up before you put the new clothes on, right? Doesn't that make sense? In much the same way, Paul says, it's not about you taking care of your own sin, but it is about you acknowledging and confessing what is true about you and your brokenness and, your, and, and your, the fact that you still need to become more like Jesus. You take these things off so that you can put on Christ. You've got to take the old stuff off first. It's ridiculous to put new clothes over old clothes. We do this all the time. When we go to church and pretend like everything's fine, our clothes are lumpy because all of our stuff is just hidden under this suit, and it just, we, we look, we're hypocrites. What's the biggest charge against followers of Jesus from the world? They're hypocrites, right? Are they right about that? All too often. What can we do about that? Let Jesus be Jesus, and then we take our part in spiritual formation. Off with the old, on with the new. I love it. It's true. And then as we put on these new things, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, because again, this isn't about guilt. If you're sitting here and you're like, oh, the guilt's getting thick, you're missing it. You're listening to the wrong voice. You understand that all of this is motivated by God's love for you and out of a holiness and a grace that he has that is overwhelming right now. And it's because he wants you to live the full life that he died to give you. And you don't need to be trapped anymore. You can be set free. You really want to become more like him? Take off the old. Put on the new. And as you put on the new, Paul says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We don't have the time, but in all of these, we see the compassion of Jesus. We see that Jesus is compassionate. We see that he goes and he finds people in trouble and he heals them. That people were drawn to this compassionate Jesus. They felt like he had something, a warmth, a presence that others didn't. The presence that he had was the very presence of the Father. Paul says to put on kindness. Is Jesus kind? Oh my goodness, he's way more kind than you and I ever deserve. It's his kindness that leads to our repentance. Is Jesus humble? In, in, in putting on human flesh, he takes on more humility than all of us ever could combine in all of our days, let alone his death on the cross. Jesus humbles himself for us. Is Jesus gentle? He's not safe, to quote C.S. Lewis, but he is, he is gentle. And he's patient. Jesus is so patient with us. Have you ever wondered why, when you become a Christian, you don't just evacuate and go to heaven right away? Have you ever wondered about that? Like, wouldn't that be the best? Like, uh, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. It's a good song, right? I think. Hopefully the ceiling will get out of the way. But anyway, we love that idea. Why don't we just get evacuated all of a sudden? It's because Christianity is not about going to the heavens and the clouds and the ha. No, 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 no. The kingdom of God is coming here. New heavens and a new earth coming here. That we don't go to heaven we bring heaven down to where we are. If there is a world full of kind, gentle, humble, patient, Christ-like people, the world will be healed. You know this, right? There's no better place at Bayshore for you to develop your patience than on the mini golf course. Me and the boys played around today. I got a 47 on the first hole. A lot of water hazards on that one, too. A lot. A lot of water hazards. And that water is blue. Have you played the mini golf course yet? Okay. 
um, at one point we got to hole number 13 or 14, and you know that the, the mini golf course is laid out like, um, it's all just stories from the scripture, Old and New Testament, brilliant layout, it's a great design. Do you know the, the um, hole number, whatever it is, that has the letters L-O-V-E, love? Do you know how I discovered those letters are made of metal? Because our golf balls kept hitting them and going, pong, pong, pong. And then Malachi or Bradley, one of the boys with me said, Wouldn't you, uh, I can't believe it. It, it. it turns out that love is an obstacle. And I said, I don't think that's what they were going for, but that's, that's really funny. I mean, that's really funny. Yeah. And then later on, Malachi kept hitting it into the, the sand trap or whatever, and he said, quote, this thing is rigged. It is rigged. It's, yeah, if it was easy, you wouldn't do it. But he's right. Actually, I think he was right. I think his, yeah, because he had sandpaper in his pocket. I think he was doing something to his golf ball. Anyway, of course it's rigged. There's no better place, there's no better place to become more like Jesus than in your sufferings. And I'm going to tell you about one that I had tonight. Can I just tell you about one? Emily and I got married, married for three years. We decided it was time for us to have kids. And for a long time, that just wasn't happening. We prayed and prayed and prayed. And I remember the moment when Emily came to me with tears in her eyes, and she was holding that little EPT pregnancy test. And she said it's positive. And in our house, we embraced, and we hugged, and we prayed. And we said, thank you, God, for this gift. And the months just flew by. We painted the nursery. We got the crib, and we got all the stuff. Because especially for your first one, you actually get all that stuff. By the third one, you're like, ah, throw some Cheerios at it. I don't know. But for the first one, for the first one, you, I mean, you really, you really take it seriously. We got it all set up. And so it was a beautiful July morning in Toledo, Ohio. Emily had been in, in, uh, in labor the whole night, you know. And, and at 522, here comes our dear Alexis June Davidson. We knew she was a girl because of the ultrasound. Um, and we knew that she was going to be here, and, and there she was. And the sun was rising. It was about this time of year, so the sun came up kind of early. The sun was rising, and our room faced the east. And so I remember, like, holding Lexi's head right here in my hand, and my hands never looked bigger to me than when I was holding her little tiny head. And the sun was, like, shining behind her. And it was sort of like the Lion King moment, the circle of life. It was beautiful. She's all backlit and angelic. It was great. But as I was looking at her, I felt like something was just a little off. Just, just like a little tiny bit. But I didn't say anything because the doctor that delivered her and the nurses and everybody were like, oh, her APGAR score is great. She's breathing. She, oh, she's going to start eating. Great, great, great. I'm like, something's not. Nah, forget it. I dismissed it. And uh, we'd been up all night, and Emily said to me at about 9 or 10 o'clock, she said, Adam, honey, go home, get some rest. I mean, she's, she's awesome. She's an awesome wife, awesome mom. She says, Adam, go home and get some rest. I'm going to rest here. They'll have the baby in the nursery, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So I go home, and I fall asleep, and I wake up to the phone ringing back when we still had phones in our houses, and fell back asleep, and then I woke up to the sound of someone's feet, like, running up the stairs to our bedroom, and someone pounding on the door, and it was Emily's sister, Melissa, and she said, Adam, you need to pick up the phone now. It's Emily, and I you know, woke up, pick up the phone. Hi, sweetie. My wife's on the other end. She's crying. She said, you need to come to the hospital. They think the baby has Down syndrome. And I thought two conflicting things. I thought, that's impossible. And I also thought, she does. 
I go to the hospital. I call her on my cell phone. I call Emily. I say, honey, it's going to be just fine. I'm trying to reassure her. She's still crying. I get to her room, and she's in a room with another mom, and the mom in the other bed had, who'd just given birth earlier had gone over and like to comfort Emily because Emily's crying. Because here's how it went. The doctor came into Emily's room, and she said, I need to tell you something about your daughter. Would you like me to wait for your husband? And Emily said, well, no, of course not. It's okay. What do you need to tell me? And the doctor said, oh, we're pretty sure she's got Down syndrome. What? We had no idea. We didn't do the, the test. We, we wouldn't have done anything different anyway, but, but we, we had no idea that this was in the mix. And they sent away a blood test, and they said, yeah, she has this thing called trisomy 21, which means that she has three chromosomes instead of a pair on her 21st pair. There's three. So that means every single strand of DNA in her body, the 21st chromosome has three instead of two which can lead to a whole different array of, of sort of changes and unique things, but hers, hers is a pretty intense version of, of Down syndrome. They sat us down and they said, now we need to explain this to you, the social worker and a doctor, they said, we need to explain to you, your daughter will probably never live alone. Your daughter might get married, but probably not. She may get a job someplace. And they said, let's put it to you this way. Because I said, oh, a job, that's good. She said, let me put it to you this way. She might work at a hospital but she'll never be a doctor or a nurse. And the word spread, and, and like the, the news got out, and so we get these cards, and we get these balloons, and the balloon said, it's a girl, and it was this weird sort of ironic celebration because uh, while we were celebrating, we were also mourning because there is a loss. We just didn't expect this. And we got a card, and they were always like Hallmark cards that had sparklies on them and stuff. And, you know, congratulations, a baby, and some, some poem or something. And you open the inside, and the card was like, a special gift from God above, sharing his blessing, lovey love, or whatever. And then they would handwrite, we're so sorry, praying for you. It was the weirdest, it was surreal. When I first found out and, and eventually came back home to, like, change and then go back to the hospital, I remember I sort of collapsed on our living room floor and cried so much that I soaked the carpet. And I, couldn't, I could not believe this was happening. I couldn't believe that God would let it happen. I couldn't believe that God would let it happen to somebody who was committed to him in ministry. I couldn't believe that God would let it happen to a couple that was committed to purity in, in their marriage. I, wouldn't, I couldn't believe any of this. It didn't seem right. I was in denial. And the denial was wrong. Two years later, Lexi developed a thing called hypsarrhythmia, which is like infantile seizures. Like as a little baby, she'd have seizures 40, 50 at a time. They went undiagnosed for a while. They were originally diagnosed as uh, acid reflux. And so developmentally, she is physically today 14 years old, but in her mind, she's about 18 months to two years old. So imagine, if you will, what a two-year-old baby would do with the body of a 14-year-old. Have you ever seen The Incredible Hulk? That's what it's like. Because she's like, I want those Cheerios. And she has the strength to go over and get those Cheerios. She's wonderful. She's sweet. She's loving. She's also kind of fierce sometimes. And I'm going to tell you something about this. I have learned more about God's love from Lexi than any book or any experience I've ever had. But I'm also going to tell you that this is one of the most difficult things in our lives. All that to say this, I believe that Lexi plays more of a role in my spiritual formation than almost anything else in my life. 
Because, my friends, I have no choice but to rely on Jesus. We, Emily and I, have no choice but to rely on Jesus. There are a lot of hard questions. And I, I know uh, whenever I share this with a group, there's always a sort of like self-imposed pressure, like I'm going to go tell Adam that it's going to, you know, I have a cousin with Down syndrome and it's okay. You seriously don't have to do that. It's all right. I know that sometimes you don't know what to say to somebody when they, when they drop something like that. Don't feel the need to say anything. We're, we've come to terms with it, and so don't, don't worry about that. We don't have to be convinced of anything, but... Um, nor do I think, by the way, that God is like, well, I've got this kid with Down syndrome, and I need to put her somewhere, so I'm going to put her with this family. I don't think that's how it works. I think the reason Lexi has Down syndrome is because we live in a broken world, and things like DNA get twisted. I think it's really that simple. I also believe that Lexi will somehow be renewed. Now, now you and I look forward to renewal when we're made right and whole and complete again to our perfect physical form, but I can't wait until the day that I look my daughter in the eyes and she goes, hi, Dad. And I can't wait till the day when she and I can reminisce about things that she and I can't talk about right now. Because I want you to know, I've told Lexi a lot of stuff. She's a very good listener. And I want you to know, too, that when Lexi hugs you, she will hug joy into you. Like, you cannot help but feel better about stuff. Because she just doesn't care. Nor is she a hypocrite. She's in a lousy mood. She's in a lousy mood. If she's having a great day, and so help her, so are you. <laughs> and so when the scripture says to me, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, I dare pray, Jesus, I want to be more like you. My job is to serve my wife and my daughter and my sons. That's my job. And I get to do fun things like this, like hang out with you guys for the week. But I also have the privilege of helping to take care of my daughter and helping to teach her how to feed herself and helping to teach her how to say maybe one more word this year. Lexi's amazing. She's a life changer. She's made me more like Jesus. So let me ask you about your suffering as we close, as the worship team comes. What is God using in your life to make you more like his son? And what have you seen as a burden so great that you've been asking God to release you from when in reality, perhaps that burden is for a greater purpose than to just give you a bad day? Perhaps Jesus wants to use that to change everything about you because he is far more interested in you becoming more like him than just about anything else when it comes to your relationship. The question is, will you lean into it? If it's my job to put my mind and my heart on things above, if it's my job to intentionally take off the old and to remove the old clothing, if it's my job and my task to basically say, that's not who I was, then I've got to be honest about that and lean in and then let Jesus do the rest. Will you let Jesus do the rest today? Will you let him do the heavy lifting as you just lean in? What's he talking to you about right now? Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we want to hear from you. And so in the quiet of this moment, in this tabernacle, we're reminded of your great presence and your grace. We're reminded of your overwhelming love. And we're reminded of the comfort that you bring in our suffering. We're reminded of your compassion upon us. We're reminded of the peace that you offer, which transcends understanding and what yet which guards our hearts and minds. And we're reminded that you were faithful in suffering. 
and that there is no suffering and there is no, there is no challenge that is too great. And tonight we're asking you to make us more like you. And maybe we've spent a lot of energy asking you to release us from something or to, to get rid of the pain when instead you want to pull us right through. Jesus, you are acquainted with suffering. And we want to acquaint ourselves with your suffering. We want to suffer like you faithfully. Jesus, you are acquainted with faithfulness. We want to be faithful like you. Even in the garden when you said, could you take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, we want to trust you with our whole lives, not just our spiritual compartment. And this week isn't about Christian parks and recreation. This isn't about just having fun. We're here to become more like you. And so we submit to that now. And if you, church, are serious about becoming more like Jesus, I invite you to stand in this moment. Only if you're serious about it. Do not take this moment lightly. And in standing, you're saying, Lord, do as you will. Not my will, but yours. You're saying, Jesus, be the center of my life. Be the place that I fix my eyes and my heart and my mind. That we would put all things in the perspective and the light of the grace of Jesus. That we would lean into him as we suffer and trust him to make us more like him. And if you'd like to take just a next step, whatever it means, you're welcome to come to the altar and pray as we sing. You're welcome to stand at any point. And I'll just come after we sing for a few moments and close us in prayer. But this time now is about responding not to Adam or not to, not to any kind of story you've heard tonight. Ours is to respond to the Holy Spirit. So what is he telling you to do? What is Jesus saying your next step is? The altar is here. This is a place of worship. Let's respond. Sing, O Christ. O Christ. Be the center of our life. Be the place we fix our eyes. Be the center of our life. And you're the center of the made in you, Jesus, breath of every living thing, everyone was made for you, you hold everything together, you hold together Oh Christ be the center of our lives be the place we fix our eyes be the center of our You're the center of the universe, and 
you're the center of the universe everything was made in you jesus breath of every living thing everyone was made for you You know, if that song is true, then I think you can handle whatever you're dealing with tonight. I think that there's, there's nothing too great for him. But there is one thing that will stand in the way of his work. There's one thing, and it's our choice. You see, we don't have to set our minds and our hearts on things above. We don't have to take off the old. We can carry right on as if everything's cool. You have permission to pretend like everything's fine. Go ahead. But you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You are free. You're thinking, Adam, I'm a leader. I can't, I can't do something like that. People will think something's, something's wrong. Of course something's wrong. You're a follower of Jesus. By following him, you've admitted that something is wrong and that you're ready to take the next step and to grow and to be, keep becoming more like Christ. You don't have to carry this anymore. You can take off the mask. If he's the center of the universe, should he be the center of your life? Come forward. Let's pray. Let's talk to the Lord about this. There's time. He is patient with us. He waits for us. He's waiting for you. I want to be more like Jesus. And so I sat through a message where a guy talked about being more like Jesus, and it was really great. I took some good notes. No. What is Jesus calling you to do right now? What is he, what is he asking you to release? What is he calling lordship over in your life that you've been holding back? What is it? Is he really the center? Oh, Christ, be the center of our life. Be the center of my life. Be the place we fix our eyes, our mind and our hearts. Be the center of our life. Not off to the side, not managed, not in our control, but under his control. Oh, Christ. Be the center of our lives. Be the place we fix our eyes. Be the center of our lives. And you're the center of the universe. Everything was made in you. Jesus, breath of every living thing, everyone was made for you. Not just some things, but everything he holds together. 
You hold everything to everything. Release, let go. You hold everything to scan. You hold everything together. You hold everything together. What? You hold everything together. Be the center. Oh, Christ, be the center of our lives. Be the place we fix our eyes. Be the center of our lives. One more, just our voices. Oh, Christ. Find us faithful in following you. We pray with great tenacity that you would make us more like your son. Do what you must. Remove what you must. Most of all, give us the courage to lay these things down. Maybe it's a conversation afterwards. Maybe it's something you want to do in us yet this week. We don't know. But we're going to trust you. We're going to follow you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for loving us. We pray these things in your strong name. And the people said, amen.